102-557. The number had been on his left arm since the war, since the concentration camps, his three years in Auschwitz. And one day, a couple of years ago, living in New York City, it occurred to him. 102-557. The number given to him by the Nazis. He could play the lottery with it. <laughs> well, to, but here, when they came to the lottery, I sometimes played the number, but I gave it up. I said, because it didn't, didn't, it came to my mind. I said, I shouldn't do this. Did, did you ever win? No. No, never won any money on that number? No, no. But, what, but you decided you shouldn't do it? No. How come? Because I think that then I should not remind myself of this whole thing, you know. When something terrible happens to you, in the moment of crisis, it's rare that you can meditate over what it means. When Jan Tomar was in the concentration camps, when he was sent to work in the German coal mines, when he was selected for experimental surgery by the Germans, he didn't have bad dreams then, he says. No, you, you, just too, you were just looking to get food and stuff like that. You were just looking at what's going to be, what happened, what, you know, in the morning. As I am getting older, I am more and more hunted by my past and the fate of my family, and crying almost every night. I mean, I can't do anything about it anymore. So I try to be busy, I try to read books, I try to make anything, to do anything. To forget. I read papers, I read books, I read everything. About the present, not about the past, you mean? Yeah. What memories come back? Sometimes, Jan says, he'll remember a holiday meal, some small, happy memory of his family, who died in the gas chambers. But that's rare. Mostly it's the bad moments which come back. And among those, the one he returns to more than any other moment, is the day in May of 1942, when his family was rounded up by the Germans and arrested. The whole thing goes back when we were all taken to this place, Lichtmannsplatz, right? Dobromir. And this came and they took my, my, oh, my family, my little brother. He was a little genius. My sister. And they put him in those big commercial wagons where they used to ship cows and, and, and everything, you know. It was the last time he saw his sister, his little brother, his mother, his stepfather. A moment that, no matter how many times you look at it, never makes sense. One minute, your life is one thing, small, private. The next, it's something else, thrown about by forces so much bigger. You're seized from your normal life and pinned in the beam of history. from WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International. It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, Pinned in History, the stories of people who were lifted out of everyday life, thrown into much bigger events, and how they made sense of what they did years after the fact. Act One, Book of Job, a man who betrayed his friends and then betrayed the people who he betrayed his friends for. Act Two, God of War, how a guy with one year of psychology graduate school got put in a position to decide who would stay at the front lines in Vietnam and who could go home. 
And what he did with that power, power he never wanted. And what he makes of all of it now. Stay with us. Act one. So it's one thing if your life is thrown about by forces beyond your control. It's another if you go out of your way to insert yourself into history and hurt people and ruin other people's lives as part of that. How do you make sense of events for which you only have yourself to blame? Scott Carrier has this first story. February 17, 1957, was the worst day of Harvey Matuso's life. At 2.30 in the morning, his mother called to say that his father had died. At 8.30, his boss called to tell him not to come into work, that he was fired. At 11.30, his wife called from California, saying she was close to Mexico and that she wanted a divorce. Then at 2.30 in the afternoon, Harvey's lawyer called to say that the Circuit Court of Appeals in New York had turned down his appeal and that he'd be going to a federal penitentiary for five years. You know what Harvey did? I laughed. I couldn't stop laughing. People were coming to my mother's house to you know, pay respects to get ready for the funeral, and there I was laughing. And a friend of mine said, read the book of Job, and I read the book of Job that night, and I continued to laugh. And I took on the name Job that day. Job Matuso, born a Jew in the Bronx. Job Matuso, ready to die a Mormon in Glenwood, Utah. Job Matuso, liberator of Europe. Job Matuso, communist. Job Matuso, who turned and became a paid informant against the communists during the McCarthy era. Job Matuso, who turned again and said he'd lied and made it up and that the Justice Department knew he was lying and in fact encouraged it. Job Matuso, the most hated man in America. Job Matuso, Cocky Boo the Clown. Job Matuso, who's been married ten times to nine different women and is still one of the loneliest old men you'd ever want to meet. Job Matuso, manager, program director, and creator of SCAT TV, the first and only public access station in central Utah. Job Matuso, con man who tells you up front that he's a con man and then cons you. Job Matuso, coyote of all coyotes. I represented the most anarchistic of anarchists. I turned on the communists and then I turned on the extreme right and put a plague on both their houses. The trick with a coyote is to not take sides. The trick is to see all things as being equal. This means accepting whatever the coyote says as being true. But it also means you accept the exact opposite of whatever the coyote says as being true as well. Now we have a song in our Magic Mouse Children's Theater which goes like, When I spend the whole day cooking and it burns when I'm not looking, I just smile and shrug my shoulders, that's the way it is. That's the way it is, by golly, that's the way it is, by golly, that's the way it is, by golly, that's the way it is, and that's the way it is. <laughs> this is the way Job tells the story. This is the way he explains the events that led up to the worst day of his life, 
and his decision to call himself Job, like from the Bible. First he was a kid on the streets in the Bronx, running bets for Phil the Bookie and delivering bribes to policemen. Then his brother went off to the Second World War and got shot down over Germany. Then Job enlisted and managed through a miracle to find his brother's unmarked grave in Nuremberg. Then he helped liberate Europe by digging bodies from out of the rubble and hanging out in coffee shops with French intellectuals. When I joined the Communist Party was as a result of the experiences with communists in Europe in World War II. I found the communists were the only substantial group of people who effectively stood up to Hitler and fought him effectively in occupied Europe. And wherever I went in liberated Europe, and I was part of the infantry that liberated Europe, I found communists who were romantic to me, who were real, in the Ernest Hemingway sense, the romance of communism. And you hear songs like, Viva la Quinte Brigada, rumbala, 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 Viva the 15th Brigade, they stood up to Franco. Viva la Quinte Brigada, rumbala, 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 Que sea copia te gloria, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. So it wasn't difficult for me to become a communist. Job joined the party in New York City in 1946. By 1947, he was a full-time employee, operating the switchboard and screening calls at the national headquarters during the day and organizing youth meetings at night. He says he had the honor to raise the first-ever Chinese communist flag flown in the United States. He says he carried Paul Robeson Jr. under a blanket in the back seat of his car into the riots at Peekskill. He was, he says, deeply involved in these struggles. In the late 40s, it was a radical thing to be a communist. It was the beginning of the Cold War, the beginning of the evil empire. Lots of people, in fact most people, believed that a war with the Soviet Union was inevitable. Then, in 1950, we did go to war with communists in Korea. And at that point, it was not radical to be a communist. It was impossible to be a communist. Being a communist meant losing your job and being publicly vilified, maybe even going to jail. Job, being more coyote than communist, saw that things were getting kind of hot. He says when things get hot, he finds another place to play. At least that's how he tells the story sometimes. Other times, he tells it like this. The Communist Party to me became very phony. Phony is a three dollar bill. It, uh, I found it hypocritical and dishonest. And maybe because I was too romantic when I entered into it. And uh, I figured the, the Cold War was getting crazier, the prosecutions, the persecutions were getting crazier. So I called the FBI. I dialed Rector 23500. And uh, I said, hi, my name is Harvey Matuso. I'm a member of the Communist Party. I want to talk to you. And that was the extent of the conversation, and we made a time to meet. So the government uh, wanted me to be a witness. And uh, I met at a rendezvous point on the East River Drive, real clandestine, and this limousine pulls up, this guy gets out, introduces himself as Roy Cohen, 
I get in the back of the limo and we take off and we talk in the car and he's interviewing me and this is a kid a guy who grew up in my neighborhood in the Bronx we have a lot in common we're the same age we were born a few months apart and uh, we hit it off real well and while we were getting ready to prepare the uh, me for my testimony in the case I used to go out and party with Roy Cohen what would you do when you party? we'd well, go to the store club we'd go to 21 we'd uh, uh, we'd party you know how do young guys in their mid-twenties go out and party? Joe became a paid political informer which was also a radical thing to be. At that time, in the early 50s, the exploits of FBI informers were celebrated in motion pictures, in television serials, in books, and in magazine articles. They were portrayed as brave heroes who risked their lives as communists only to emerge as true patriots, indispensable, as J. Edgar Hoover once said, to the American way of life. And it was a lucrative profession. The most charismatic informers supplemented their incomes with generous lecture fees, royalties from best-selling books, as well as radio, television, and film rights to their harrowing exposés of the Red Menace. Though only 26 years old, Job met with immediate success. In his first appearance on the witness stand in 1951, at a hearing of the House Committee on Un-American Activities, he was billed as an authority on the communist conspiracy to penetrate the youth of America. Overnight, his name was in the headlines. Witness bears plot to infiltrate the Boy Scouts. Secret FBI man reveals 3,500 students recruited here for Red Fifth Column. Communists use sex to lure members. Job was a hit, a rising star. I, I, I play acted. I made up a game. I made up a story. I did something nobody else did. All these other witnesses were old men and old women. And here I come on a war veteran from two wars that he had enlisted in, in his 20s, and he's talking about communism and youth. I mean, all these other guys were in their 50s and 60s. I was a breath of fresh air for them. Job testified in front of the House Committee on Un-American Activities, the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee, the Government Operations Committee, the Subversive Activities Control Board hearings, and in two criminal prosecutions for the Justice Department one of which was the famous First Amendment case against union organizer Clinton Jenks. Job named hundreds of people as communists or communist sympathizers, many of whom had been his friends. When he ran out of people to name, he started making up stories, anything that would make a good performance, anything that would make it in the papers. For instance, on one of his lecture tours, he told a group of high school students in Pocatello, Idaho, that he'd been sent by a Czechoslovakian delegation to New Mexico, where he set up a system of espionage at Los Alamos. He also said that the Soviet Union had scheduled 1961 as the year it would take over the United States. The press loved him, and he loved the press. Here I was meeting with people, editors of the Hearst newspapers, making up stories with them. I mean, I was going out and having dinner every night with the columnist Walter Winchell, and he fell in love with me, so I'd go out at his old Cadillac convertible, and he had a police radio, and he was the best-known journalist in the country at the time. And we'd go chase police calls. He'd listen to the police calls, and he'd show up, and he wore a gun. The guy was a madman, and I'd hang out with him. 
and I'd hang out every night. I'd go to Tutshaw's bar and hang out with all the celebrities from Hollywood and big shot, big bullshit stuff, you know. It was a whole different dance, a whole different ball game. Where, where I fabricated stories is like I said, because I belonged to the American Newspaper Guild and was involved in organizing the union, that the New York, Sunday New York Times, I said, had 126 communists working for it when they only had either 78 or 96 employees. At this point, I forget which figure. And nobody, not even the New York Times, ever questioned that. Did you know that they were gonna, it was going to be on the news that night? Or when oh, yeah. Every night, for weeks. And I'd turn on the box and we'd watch the news, and there I was. Day after day, freaking out America. And you knew you were doing it? Oh, I was very conscious of it, yeah. I knew I had the whole nation. It was in my, I was in everybody's living room. That's a very strong feeling. In 1952, after Job was already a hotshot paid political informer, he walked into Senator Joseph McCarthy's office in Washington and offered his services in McCarthy's re-election campaign. He became, he says, close friends with McCarthy. He says he even delivered 70% of McCarthy's campaign speeches when the senator was in the hospital for alcohol-related illnesses. Through McCarthy, Job met the heiress Arvilla Bentley, one of McCarthy's biggest financial supporters. She became Job's second wife. It was unreal. Married a woman who had millions of dollars and she was a party giver and lived on fancy Foxhall Road. The house is now the German ambassador's residence. And here I came from the streets of the Bronx running bets for Phil the bookie and I'm throwing dinner parties in Washington. My next-door neighbor is Governor Averill Harriman, or Ambassador Harriman at that time. And when he moved out to go back to New York to become governor, uh, Secretary of Treasury Humphrey moved in next door. He'd be working the garden, and I'd be out talking to the Secretary of Treasury because he was my neighbor. It wasn't a real world. It was so surreal. It was like a Salvador Dali painting. The only thing it missed were the melting clocks rolling off the, the rocks and the furniture. <laughs> We're in Job's car, driving down the highway in central Utah. His car is a 1970 Cadillac Brome DeVille of a color I've studied but am unable to discern, tarnished gold or tarnished silver or both. He got the car, he says, by getting down on his knees and praying. He asked God to give him a car, and God gave him this one. Lived in London and Paris and New York and Melbourne and Sydney and... Berlin and San Francisco and Boston and you name it, I've lived there. But uh, none of it beats what we got here. Two years ago, Job came to the small farming community of Glenwood, Utah, in an old school bus loaded with consumer-grade video production equipment, and in short order, he started Six Counties Access Television, a public access station that shows high school band practice, the local church choir doing the Messiah, drill team competitions, and also the Magic Mouse magazine, Job's non-violent kid show. 
He has more than 100 hours of Magic Mouse magazine on tape. Each show is hosted by Job playing Cockyboo the Clown. Right now we're in the car, driving around, changing the Magic Mouse tapes at various cable downlink stations scattered around the countryside. On the seat between us are two little dogs, tiny dogs, each so small I can close my thumb and index finger around their necks. And one dog is on top and humping the other dog, and she's looking up at me with big, woeful eyes, all the woe of the meat conception. Job is driving the car, but he has some back trouble, and he can't really sit up high enough to see over the dashboard or the long hood of the car. And then he has the car in cruise control, so his feet are way back from the pedals, nowhere near the pedals, and it's like he's just acting like he's driving, like the car is floating down the road on a cloud. Job tells me he was responsible for the creation of the Freedom of Information Act. He tells me he was the person who started the myth about getting high off smoking banana peels. He tells me he was the developer of the stringless yo-yo, which, he says, in 1957, was the second best-selling children's toy in America, right behind the hula hoop. He tells me that there's more creative talent in these small Utah towns than anywhere else he's been in the world. There's more creative talent in this valley per capita than any place I have ever been on the planet Earth. Anywhere. And it's still, it's got an innocence about it which makes it beautiful for me. It's not jaundiced as Hollywood in New York is jaundiced. We stop by a mailbox in front of a small white house. The mailbox says Mike, just Mike. Mike comes out of the house and gets in the back seat wearing a balaclava ski mask pulled down over his face like we're going to rob a bank or something. We stay in the car for about an hour and Mike doesn't take the mask off. Mike is the television station's technical engineer and Job's best friend. He's also the opposite of Job in every way. Job likes to talk, and he likes to talk about himself and how he fits into the bigger picture of things. Mike almost never talks, and when he does, he talks about flywheels and edit functions and video cassette recorders. Job likes to be seen and known. Mike hides behind his balaclava. Job has dogs, but he's actually much more like a cat himself. Mike has a cat, but he's actually much more like a dog himself, and so on. The best way I can describe Mike to somebody is that he couldn't tell a lie if he wanted to. And I don't meet many people of that pure spirit much in my life. Very rare. And when I meet somebody with that pure spirit, I want to nurture it and enjoy it and, and be around it. Because it'll never sell you short. It'll never be dishonest with you. So, at one time, you know, you were associating and hanging out with some of the most important people of the century. Uh-huh. And now you live in Glenwood, Utah, and you hang out with Mike. What, I, mean, I hang out with my friend Mike, and he's very special. By 1954, the whole witch hunt of communists was beginning to fall apart. Edward R. Murrow broadcast his famous expose on Joe McCarthy, and then McCarthy himself was investigated in the Army McCarthy hearings. McCarthy responded in part by turning up the heat on Job, 
asking him to supply names of writers and journalists who were commies or sympathizers. But by this time, Job was having second thoughts. Being a paid informer had been like being a communist, in that it had been fun for a while, but then it got scary. He decided it was maybe time to come clean. This is when Job recognized Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and was baptized into the Mormon Church. I took to it like a duck to water. Are you kidding? The Mormon Church? Wow. Everything I wanted in my life, in this gospel, in this lifestyle, and in the way that people were, in the caring for each other. And then my conscience really got the to bum me out. Here I was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and I was living with all these misdeeds and I finally said I gotta stop the bullshit. and it's not blacklisting was my business but I was a false witness up front all the way. Let it go. According to a friend of mine who is a wise man and also a good Mormon there are three things you need to do in order to repent, in order to achieve forgiveness. The first is you have to try not to do the bad thing again. The second is you have to try to compensate your victims. The third is you have to find some kind of peace with yourself. Of these three, the third is by far the most difficult to achieve. Job started with the first two things by visiting and apologizing to some of the people he'd named in front of the committees people whose lives he'd ruined. He told them that he wanted to try to pay them back by writing a book about how he'd lied and made things up, a book that would, hopefully, bring down the McCarthy era once and for all. Then he asked each of them if they might want to put up some money to help get the book published. It felt real good to go to people and ask forgiveness. Were any of them upset? Were any of them? I go to somebody and say, "Hey, look, I was an asshole. I was this. I was that, and uh, I'm sorry, and I shouldn't have done it. And you know, please forgive me. And if you don't, I'm still asking your forgiveness. And that's a good, clean feeling. It's a rich feeling. It it balances the body out, man. It really does. None of the men that Job visited wanted to publish his book, however, and he decided it was time to leave his old life behind and go to Utah and marry a Mormon girl. He set off by walking and hitchhiking across Texas, wearing German desert army fatigues, black boots, a black beret, a black beard, and a backpack full of Old Testament puppets. At night, he'd stop in hospitals in small towns and ask if he could perform his puppet show for the kids in exchange for a bed and something to eat. He traveled like this across Texas and into New Mexico, and in New Mexico, he got a message from his mother. A publisher in New York wanted him to write his book. Even though Job was very close to a nice, quiet life in Utah, he decided he had an obligation to set the record straight, so he went back to New York City. Coming up, trying to set the record straight, and because of it, ending up in prison, the most hated man in America. That's in a minute from Public Radio International, when our program continues.
It's His American Life on Ira Glass. Each week in a program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, people whose lives were pinned in history, caught up in huge historical events, and what they made of their actions years after the fact, when it was quiet enough to make sense of anything. Scott Carrier's story about Harvey Matuso, Job Matuso, continues. Job has moved back to New York, invited to write a book, hoping to set the record straight. The publishers set him up with an apartment in Manhattan and a stenographer, and in four months, Job dictated false witness, his book describing in detail how he'd lied and fabricated stories and how the government prosecutors had known he was lying and even participated in the process. In particular, he named Roy Cohn, his old friend and government prosecutor in the trial of the communist leaders in New York and also in the Jenks trial. In his book, and also under oath in an affidavit, Job said that Cohn had known that he was lying in the trials and had even encouraged him to do it. Cohn denied everything. Even before the book was published, Job was called in front of some of the same committees he'd appeared before as an expert witness, only now he was the accused. I am not an expert on this subject of communism. I was not a leader in the Communist Party. I was a communist flunky in a, in a club on the Lower East Side of New York. And through a few lies, I built myself up into an expert on communism. And you expect me to start uh, sounding off about what the Communist Party thinks and does, about what orders come from Moscow, if any? I was finally letting it out and kicking all the shackles of this play acting. I wasn't play acting when I was testifying. I knew they were going to put me in jail, so what could they do? Are you afraid of the truth, sir? Sir, are you afraid of the truth? I am not afraid of any truth that you can give because I don't think there's any truth in your body. They were freaking out. Like Sarah Wine, the chief counsel of the committee, says, Haven't you called yourself leader of the communist youth movement? And I responded, I lied! And everybody laughed. Haven't you called yourself leader of the Kremlin youth movement in this country? I lied! You're the one who's responsible for my role as a witness, not I. You're responsible by creating the fear and hysteria in this country where people can't talk to one another, where neighbor can't talk to neighbor without fear of being called a communist. You're responsible for the hysteria. We forced you? Yes, sir, by creating a fear and hysteria in this country, which this country's never seen before. Oh, no. Where people can't turn around and talk to their neighbors without fear of being called a communist. Honest, decent people. You're the one who's responsible for my role as a witness, not I. Have you ever... When I wrote the book, I was going to go to jail. There was no question in my mind. From the beginning, when you were writing the book? Oh, yeah. When that became part of my consciousness, I knew as sure as God made little apples, I was either going to be assassinated or go to jail, or both. And I was perfectly prepared for it. In fact, part of me wanted to be assassinated. But it would have been a great release, finally. I wrote the book, I did the recantation, I straightened the record out, and if somebody wants to blow me away and let me go home to God, I'll be home with my father. What a blessing. This brings us up to the worst day of Job's life, the day he decided to call himself Job, like from the Bible. Only if you'll remember, the Job in the Bible was an innocent man, a virtuous man, who suffered only because of a bet God made with the devil, whereas Job from Glenwood, Utah, is a man who, through his own selfish desires, brought pain and suffering to a lot of people.
In his book, False Witness, published in 1955, Job confesses his sins and writes about how he was a bad man who's trying to repent. But when he tells the same story now, in 1998, he sometimes describes the events as if he were a victim of circumstance, or at least that things were never black and white, and that he was simply doing the best he could all along. Eighty percent of the people who I named before the committee were communists, and I had sure, they were sure of it. That wasn't a question of my lying about it. What was wrong was that I was, was naming them at all. But at the same time, I started to have a fantasy, and based on the experiences I had in Europe at the end of World War II, with many French communists who would tell me stories of how they, repugnant as it was, went to work for the SS and the Gestapo and the German authorities that occupied France. And they did so so they could spy on the Germans. And I used to fantasize, and it was strictly a fantasy, and I don't want to give it any more credence than that, that I went to the FBI and did to the FBI what these people had done to the Gestapo. In the end, Job was sent to jail for perjury. When he got out after four years in 1961, he found work publishing avant-garde art books and helping to edit the East Village Other, which, according to Job, was the first underground newspaper in America. In the 60s and early 70s, he traveled to England, France, and Australia, but everywhere he went, his past was right behind him. So I realized at that point that regardless of what I did, Whatever accomplishment I may have, it's going to be attacked and its foundations are going to be chipped away at by the past and people's view of and their perception of me in the McCarthy period. And at that point, I realized that I really am not going to care about what they think anymore. Job came back to the States in 1973 and began to commit his life to serving others and doing the Lord's work as a sort of penance. He set up homeless shelters and soup kitchens in New York and Massachusetts and collected used clothes and food that he drove out to South Dakota and delivered to the Sioux Indians. He moved around a lot, from one city to another, from one wife to another. He was like Chuck Connors in the TV show The Rifleman, an officer in the U.S. Cavalry who had somehow blacked out in battle and deserted his men and was court-martialed. They broke the rifleman's saber, and he was branded, scorned as a man who ran. Every week, the rifleman tried to redeem himself by saving lives and helping people out of trouble and by getting rid of the bad guys in town. But he could never shake his past. He could never even remember what had happened. In 1977, Job moved to Tucson, Arizona, where he fell in with a troupe of street musicians and performers that he managed and organized into the Magic Mouse Theater, a nonviolent kids' TV show on the local public access TV station. Job, of course, was the host of the program, Job playing Cocky Boo the Clown. Cocky Boo is an old clown, dressed in rags that were once the clothes of a rich man, top hat and tuxedo coat. He's more scary than funny, and he's always trying to tell you something that you feel like you should be able to understand, but you can't. It, it all started a, a long, long time ago. It was in a faraway place 
close to the hearts of those knowing love. And there was a village called Angelville. Now, if you were going too fast to happen to sneeze, you wouldn't see it. And the only way one could get to Angelville was to find the secret path which led to the center of everything. Job lives in a small adobe house he calls the Gandhi Peace Center, a shelter for homeless men. But the only homeless man here tonight seems to be Job Matuso. His bedroom is also the production room for the TV station, and it's crammed with blinking VCRs and scattered video cassettes and various dust-covered memorabilia from the past. It's dinner time, and Job is sitting on his sunken bed, feeding his five little dogs. This is Mabel Muldoon, and this is Mopsy Muldoon, and this one is Buster Brown, the coolest dog in doggy town. And uh, they're my family. I like hanging out with dogs and people with disability. In order to achieve forgiveness, you must do three things. Of these three, the third, finding peace with yourself, is by far the most difficult. If you're able to do this, if you can find redemption, then when the bad thing you did comes up again in memory or in conversation, it doesn't matter anymore. Whether you were a victim of fate, or whether you caused it all to happen by your own conscious actions, whether you were just doing the best you could under the circumstances, or whether you were evil, when you've truly been forgiven, the bad thing doesn't have an effect on you anymore. It just goes right through you. Look, in the other room, I got a big picture of Roy Cohn. It's a three-foot-by-five-foot photograph of Roy Cohn. Big! Morton Downey Jr. gave it to me one day in New York. And I put that picture up of Roy Cohn, that same picture, when he died on July 1st, 1988. And I start to say a cottage for him. And I don't let his spirit go. And he's the man I should be hating the most in the world. He sent me to jail for five years. And he was a miserable human being to a lot of people and did a lot of harm, much more than I ever did. And I still pray for the man. And there's big pictures up in my studio because I don't want to forget that I can forgive. The most enjoyable time I have in life right now is when I sometimes have to get in my car at 4.30 or 5 in the morning here in central Utah and drive the 175 miles to Salt Lake City and it's still dark and I get in the car and it's we're high in the mountains and when I get in the car I have a prayer and then I start to conjure up the spirit of every human being I have ever known who has gone to spirit starting with my parents and my brother and my aunts and my uncles and my grandparents, my grandparents and, my and then brother, all the people I've ever known, including Senator Joseph 44 McCarthy, uncles and aunts, including Roy Cohen, my countless cousins, and then all the friends and people I've known in my life who have gone to spirit. Job told me this story in his house. He told me the same story in his car. And I take a quiet moment and I say to each one, good morning, I love you and you're not forgotten. I've never told this story to anybody before. 
Scott. This is amazing that I've shared this with you. It's a very private thing. But I want to state that when I think of all the people, that means all the people I ever knew, the saints and the sinners, and sometimes especially the sinners. Reporter Scott Carrier lives in Salt Lake City. story about somebody who, like Joe Matuso, had power over people's lives, thanks to a convergence of historical forces. But unlike Joe Matuso, this man made a decision about what he thought about his role in history at the time that it all happened. And he hasn't wavered much about it since. It has taken a kind of toll on him, though. Jeffrey Harris served as a kind of psychologist for the Army during the Vietnam War, even though he had no graduate degree in psychology. It was his job to decide who could go home and who had to stay at the front. In other words, who might die and who might have a chance at living. He only had one year of grad school. His tour of duty began at Chogai. It's right on the South China Sea. We had a beach right there. Uh, so we were kind of on the beach uh, and fairly far away from the perimeter. It's fairly safe. We'd get rockets in periodically that would make you run for cover, but... Anything that hit over where we were was going to be stray because they generally aim their rockets at the airfield. I told my wife, you know, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to stay as safe as possible. I'm trying to make it through the year and come back. That's what I want to do. Um, that all changed after I got there. I mean, first place you start seeing people coming in out of the field, and uh, it's hard not to identify with with the war in some sense. Uh, so, what do you mean identify with the war? Well, there's a certain excitement to it, and and if you're back in the rear, you know, back someplace, going through. Um, somewhat meaningless kind of procedures, you know, just practicing rote over and over and over again, field training exercises, uh, war games, uh, and all the other stuff that you do, you know, uh, inspection, shining your boots, uh, marching. Then the things that are going on are going on out there. I'll give you an example. I mean, the 
commanding officer of that company decided that he was going to beautify the place. He was going to plant palm trees and put in sidewalks. You know, you've got to get out there and do this. Many soldiers volunteer if there's, you know, if they're in a if they're in a safe place, it's not uncommon to volunteer to go out where the action is to get away from the bullshit at the rear. Captain he invites me into his little office and he says, uh, uh, we have a situation and we need a volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've considered the other other uh, social work specialists in the you know around here, but we figure you're the most qualified, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, what the, you know, what the hell are you asking me to volunteer for? I remember I'm in Chihuahua out on the you know out on the beach. We go down there and drink beer and swim and <laughs> the other kinds of things you do in Vietnam. Sit there and smoke a joint and watch the moon rise. And, it's kind of a nice place, all right? And uh, I said, what, what do you ask me to volunteer for? And he says, well, the 196th Infantry Brigade is going away. And it was at that time, I don't know whether you remember, but it was when the siege on Hue was taking place. This is right after the uh, Tet Offensive. Uh, in fact, it's the setting for uh, Full Metal Jacket. This is... Uh, 196 is going away, and we'd like you to go with him. And my stomach just went. <laughs> and I'm sitting there looking at this guy. And so what I finally did, I got to use the. Actually, the thing that ended up getting me out in the field was I couldn't pass up a good one-liner. <laughs> I turned to him and I said, yeah, I've been wanting to get out of this chicken unit anyway. And I couldn't pass up the one-liner. You know, it was one of those mixed things, you know. Did, I mean, did I want to go through this whole situation and, you know, someday in my my grandkids come up and say, uh, Grandpa, were you in the war? And, yeah. What did you do? Planted palm trees. You know, it was... And I did... Have, and furthermore, they were right. I mean, when he said, you're the most qualified, he was right. I, I conceivably was... Well, I was. I was the most qualified there. And I knew, I knew that, even though I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I knew none of us did. So I went. I am out with a medical unit. Um, and we have our own little kind of a hospital to handle incoming casualties, which could either be some sort of physical casualty or psychiatric casualty. And uh, it, it, I have to give you an idea what it, 
what our hospital looked like. The, the hospital that we'd worked in was built out of ammo boxes that were filled with sand. That was the walls. And a, and a plywood kind of a roof over, the, over this thing. Uh, that was basically a plywood floor. Uh, the, you know, what the equivalent of a bed was a stretcher. What you had was like sawhorses set up and the casualties would come in on stretchers and he'd lay the stretchers over the sawhorses. That was the, that's essentially what the hospital looked like. And I am the only, what would you call it, I'm the only thing close to a psychologist they've got, even though I'm only an enlisted man. And it was frightening for me, it was very scary for me. Uh, they're going to tell me this individual is yours and you've got to deal with it. When my background was essentially running rats around mazes and, and what in the hell am I doing here? And often uh, when we get casualties, one out of four would be psychiatric. So I was, you know, I was dealing, you know, one out of 25% often would be, they'd say, Harris, he's yours. Uh, take what you used to be called combat fatigue. Uh, that term was not used in Vietnam, it had been used previously. Shell shock is another term. It's a notion of somebody situationally is, you know, that has reacted to a very uh, high stress situation in some sense or another broken down. Uh, that was a common sort of thing that I had to deal with. You, you weren't looking at psychotic behavior. You weren't looking at somebody who was having delusions or hallucinations or uh, you were looking at somebody that's basically, I mean, sort of a major panic attack. Sometimes it was. You'd see panic attacks. Uh, but kind of a breakdown and a return to its sort of a childishness. Help me, help me. Uh, I can't handle myself. Uh, I can't handle this. I'm weak and uh, crying, uh, how can I, crying to be calm, and how can, how can I put it, somebody to help them, somebody to save them, and, and, and it's quite, un, given the situations that they were in, it's quite understandable, uh, you know, they might have been walking along and all of a sudden their whole unit's gone and they're there. They wanted me to state that they were psychiatrically, some constitutional way, unable to go back into that kind of situation. That they had to be removed from the danger because there's, there's something wrong with them. They can't. They're saying that they can't do it. They may not be saying that explicitly, but the body language and the language and everything implied that and, and furthermore quite often it was quite explicit I can't go back out there I can't do it I'll break down I'll die I'm, I'm unable to do this I'm not strong enough you 
And so, I mean, you can play with the theory, you know, theoretically yourself. What happens to somebody, you turn to them and they say, I'm too weak, I can't handle this kind of situation. Other people can handle stress. Other people can handle danger. I can't. And I turn to them and I agree and I say, that's right. That's the kind of person you are. So I didn't say that. I place the responsibility back on them that they've got to make a choice. That I am not going to tell them that they're too weak, that they're too incapable of handling stress, that there's something constitutionally or genetically or whatever the hell it is wrong with them that makes them different from other people. And that they, and also that they have reacted, that the reaction is a, is a human reaction. And conceivably anybody, it can happen to anybody, any of us. And my rule was basically none of us go home unless we all go home. And so for the combat fatigue or acute situational reaction, the response was that you are going back to your unit. I'm not going to take you out. I'm not going to give you a diagnosis and, and tell you and tell other, you know, I'm not going to send you back to a hospital on the basis that there's something psychologically wrong with you. And it's a simple simple old philosophy, if you fall off the horse, you get back on. You deal, you go back into the situation and you deal with it. Now the individual, you know, they'll say, well, I can't. I say, well, you've got a choice. I say, you can go back to your unit commander and refuse. Well, they'll throw me in stockade. I say, that's a possibility. Another possibility is that they'll, they'll send you back to the rear and have you folding blankets in some supply room. I don't know what they'll do. But I'm not going to make the decision. You've got to make a decision. Do I sound like it was not difficult for me? Uh, quite often, I, I could have pulled people back, sent them back to the rear. Done, you know, I could have done a number of things. I had the power to do that, even though I was only an enlisted man. I was the only one they had. And I had that kind of power. And it was very frightening for me. It was something that I had never, I had never planned on. I had never taken that kind of responsibility in my life and had never planned on taking it. And there is a sense in which you do become inert. You're able to look at something and say, oh, there it is. Look at something gruesome. It was a common expression in Vietnam. There it is. You walk up on somebody and he's, he's got his head blown off and his guts all over, and he's, people look at it and say, There it is. And walk on. How, do you, how else do you deal with that sort of thing? Say, What do you say? So, there it is. So you do develop, you know, a defense, 
which for me was kind of frightening after I realized I had it, after I came back from Vietnam. That was part of a, of a change that had occurred to me that I was not sure that I wanted to maintain, was just being able to emotionally distance myself from, uh, from pain, from somebody else's pain. At the same time, I don't want to give it up. Dr. Jeffrey Harris is now a psychologist practicing in Salt Lake City. He spoke with Scott Carrier. program produced today by Elise Spiegel and myself with Nancy Updike and Julie Snyder, senior editor Paul Toff, contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and Consul Yuri Saraval. Production help from Rachel Day and Suyini Davenport. That's the Way It Is was played on acoustic guitar for us by Michael Kirkpatrick. Special thanks today to Stephen Duncombe, Bennett Epstein, Mickey Vukic, and public radio station KUER in Salt Lake City. If you want to buy a cassette of this program, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago. The phone number, 312-832- 3380-312-832-3380. Our email address, radio at well.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who also describes himself as the person who started the myth about getting high off smoking banana peels. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. PRI Public Radio International.